What's up, y'all? I'm Cheeto. And I'm Christine. And in today's episode, we will cover Miley Cyrus's re-re-transformation, Australia's first black senator sworn in. And in our topic of the day with our friend and comedian Gavin Lynn, we talk about white and African. And finally, in our minority spotlight, we have the creators of a new edgy online panel show called Say It Loud Show. Stay tuned. Christine, life is heartbreaking these days. Okay, why why are you heartbroken? Because of Miley Cyrus. In my head, we used to be friends, but now we're not. If you ha- if you don't know already, she's come out with a new album, and she's going back to her country roots after taking a bit of a turn and being all hip hop and cool and twerking and blah blah blah. And then she just threw it all out the window as if it meant nothing. <laughs> That's like appropriation next level. Yeah, she was appropriating, but I mean, I don't take Miley so seriously. Oh, I so, did. Okay. I don't know. Maybe because you have some type of connection with her because she was Hannah yeah, Montana. Yeah, she was Hannah Montana. I used to watch her on TV <laughs> like all the time. Like, you know, it's one thing that, you know, to change your image, but it's another when her reason for leavings were, well, I know she claims it was sensationalized in the interview, but effectively she was saying, oh, you know, just talking about, you know, my external genitalia for some men or you know women and money she was just like oh that's not my jam anymore like you know it's like oh sorry that's like your extent of understanding the hip-hop culture but it does not end at twerking and making money okay well i I think there has to be a distinction drawn between commercial hip-hop and you know the other type of like conscious hip-hop yeah so so i mean in some respects, I think she is right about commercial hip-hop music, mm-hmm. is that it is kind of misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm not on board with her kind of just... Um, I feel like she can feel the way she feels, but she doesn't have to say every thought that exactly. comes in her head. Exactly. Look at Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears to some extent. They did not go bagging other genres once they left them. They just left quietly. You know, if she'd done that <laughs> quietly, I would have been fine. But no, she had to, like, fire the shots. <laughs> yeah. Eh, anyway, she's young. We're the same age. <laughs> I <young>. still understand. <laughs> That's not what you do. Yeah, whatever. She That wasn't cool, but, like, uh, So you now know. she's all country because she's like, she'll connect better with Trump supporters and help influence decisions, blah, 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 blah. Oh, really? Is that yes. what she said? Yes. Yeah, she's like, do you think anyone's going to take me seriously with nipple pasties? No, I need to connect with the other oh, because that's, of... Oh, please. That's really interesting because she said that when she was all naked and stuff, she said that... That's how you get people to listen to you because they pay attention to you when you're naked. It makes you look. And then she's like, okay, now I have your attention. This is what I have to say. So it's interesting that she's kind of flipped the script and gone the other direction. I don't know. It's it's whatever. I haven't even watched that new music video. I will someday, (laughs) but not now. It's too raw. Uh, okay. <laughs> While you are heartbroken about the Miley situation, some of us are celebrating 
Uh, <laughs> can't, it's not like I can't be doing both. <laughs> yes, okay. Maybe you're also celebrating. But uh, earlier this month, well, earlier in May, Australia's first black African member of federal parliament was sworn in and her name is Lucy Kichuhi. So that was amazing. It's like hashtag black girl magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, originally is from Kenya and she came to Australia in 1999 with her family to uh, resettle here. And um, yeah, she's a lawyer by profession. And yeah, she seems really fired up about this politics stuff. And I think it's awesome to see a little bit more racial diversity in Parliament because um, politics has a huge impact on the policies that are made that affect everyone's lives. So I think that is totally awesome. Um, not so awesome, though, was earlier on in the year in April, the Labour Party was challenging Miss uh, Gichui's eligibility to be senator based on some concerns about okay. her citizenship. Like, you know, she's a lawyer, right? I'm sure if uh, <laughs> she'd noticed some problems with her citizenship, she would have flagged that. But, you know, she's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it sounds all too familiar. Uh, yeah, I was like, wait a minute. Why is this ringing bells? Another person from Kenya? Maybe? No, wasn't from Kenya, <laughs> as proven by birth certificate. <laughs> But it's it's really weird to me because like, well, Labour was challenging that she is a dual citizenship. And presumably, if you hold public office, you're not allowed dual citizenship. But I think it's personally, I kind of look at it as a case of racial po- uh, profiling. Like there are a ton of white people who could be running, mm-hmm. um, who could have dual citizenship yeah. because of the ancestry in England or whatever. So it's like, why are they specifically... Targeting her. Targeting her. I wonder. Huh. Shade. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay because we're all up in here now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Politicking. That's how we do. Politicking. <laughs> Anywho, so th- yeah, so that was some good news at least. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of counter S- the Miley. Slightly. Just a little <laughs> situation. bit. <laughs> all right. So up next, uh, we're going to be talking to a friend of ours about being white and African. Mm. Stick around. There's a movie quote from Mean Girls that goes, if you're from Africa, why are you white? And that's sort of what we're going to be discussing today. And since Chido and I are not white, surprise, <laughs> uh, we've enlisted the help of a very funny up-and-coming comedian, uh, South African, uh, who goes by the name of Gavin Lind. Well, not goes by the name of him. His name is <laughs> Gavin Lind. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Hello. Hi, guys. Yes, my name's definitely Gavin Lind. Thank <laughs> you so much. What a wonderful, wonderful introduction. It's good to have you with guys. Well, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to talk on this topic. I know it can be a little bit of a sensitive topic, so thank you in advance. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> my pleasure. So, yeah, let's get straight into it. Um, could you tell us, I suppose it would be helpful for us and for our listeners to know a little bit of context. Uh, so where you were born and where you grew up and uh, what countries you've lived in. Sure. I was, uh, I'm born South African and raised South African. I was born in Johannesburg way back in 1974 now and grew up in Cape Town though. So I went all my schooling years down in Cape Town and growing up, 
ultimately as a white kid in apartheid South Africa because apartheid only ended officially in 1994 were the first democratic elections of the 27th of April but there'd been a period of about four years prior to that where things were definitely in change and definitely in flux and the inevitable of what we now see as the democratic and rainbow republic of South Africa came to be. So that that's really my story. Um, I know you girls are Zimbabwean. Yeah, yeah. 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 so a little bit different because we were we're part of the born free category. So we, yeah, we, we didn't go through that uh, period in our country's history where there was segregation. So yeah, we might touch on that a little bit. So whereabouts have you lived since uh, living? So yeah, I've only ever lived in South Africa and Australia. So we moved to Australia in the beginning of 2006 and lived in outback Western Australia or in Kalgoorlie for a couple of years before moving to Melbourne where I've been since uh, 2008. So it's coming up for almost 10 years in Melbourne. Nice. So you're quite seasoned. Melbourne, then. (laughs) I'm a coffee snob Melbourne. Exactly right. (laughs) So we've learned. (laughs) So when you moved from South Africa to Australia, um, Mm -hmm. you moved from living in a country where you were a racial minority to being a country that is predominantly white. What was that experience like for you? The thing about it, Christine and Cheeto, is you come as a middle-aged white South African into a place like Australia, and there are these absolute and definite stereotypes that people have and views they have of you. And it's, it's the most peculiar thing because I think the reason people perhaps move is one of two things. It's either what I call a push factor or a pull factor. Mm-hmm. And my moving to Australia definitely was a pull factor. There was an economic opportunity. There was the sense of adventure, this idea of perhaps living and working somewhere else. And that was the driver behind coming to Australia when we did. Um, it's the antithesis of the push factor. And the push factor is the is the reasoning that I hear most in Australia. So it's, oh, yeah, you must have, you must have wanted to get out because it's so dangerous there. And, you know, you know, the whites, they don't have opportunities anymore. Is those kind of things that you hear almost in polar opposites. And you only hear the, the one about the push factor the most. And I often reflect because I think it's got a lot to do with people justifying why they've moved from their home country, their country of birth, to a different place with this intent of making a permanent life here. And I wouldn't have said that moving to Australia for me was necessarily going to be permanent. It just the sense of adventure became one of, I don't mind this place, I quite like it, I quite enjoy the the sunshine and the various other things that it has to offer, so I want to experience it a bit more and, and ultimately have ended up staying. I had no idea that there was kind of like this push and pull yeah, factor. Yeah, push pull factor at all. Um, just wondering, in in Australia, do you feel like accepted into the Australian culture or um, because you did grow up in South Africa, do you still kind of feel like an outsider? Maybe not so much now that you've lived here for so long, but... What was that like, like integrating into, I suppose, this predominantly white culture? Was there sort of like an expectation of, oh, yes, come, you're one of us? Or, <laughs> or, I don't think I've had that. I, I don't think I've experienced that. Or was it different? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I recall it being pretty much inclusive straight away. Um, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that you 
come and be honest about who you are and that they're happy to have you here and that there's interesting things that you bring, but also because I'm white. And I'm not going to skirt over that, that issue because I think it's this, this visual thing that you look like us. You've come from a place where we as Australians think it must be economically hard and challenging for a white South African and a white male South African to experience you know, advancement at work or an entrepreneurial spirit when there's these policies in place that they've heard and not necessarily true, I'll have you know, have heard about South Africa in terms of like affirmative action or black economic empowerment policies that the government perhaps, and I think rightly, have put in place to lift the socioeconomic standing of, of many of, of our fellow countrymen in South Africa. So initially, I'd say it was very much an acceptance, but coming back to that earlier point of the push and pull, people don't necessarily like the pull factor reasoning because they, they like to make you feel welcome on the basis that you aren't wanted in your home country. So therefore you are a welcome here and we can make those opportunities as a, a fellow white person to put it against those two kind of juxtaposed white, not white uh, that live in Australia. But the predominant feature of the culture and, and the population is exactly that. Mm. Yeah. So do you think that people have challenged your Africanness? both in South Africa as well as like here in Australia or even like abroad because uh, you're doing comedy abroad. So how does totally. that balance? Uh, you know, I don't know if you, uh, you, you guys mentioned you're part of the Born Free Zimbabweans. Yeah. yeah. For me and my experience in emigrating ultimately because I, I've never returned to live in South Africa again is you don't ever really belong to the place you're going to and you don't ever really ever belong again to the place you've come from. There's something about the cultural experience in South Africa when I returned there on a holiday after living in Australia for about a year and people judged the fact that I had in a sense abandoned them like family and friends felt abandoned that I'd left oh, no. and I felt this connection changing forever like there was a, a permanent break in the connection but you never really belong to the place you've gone to either because you don't form part of, you don't know their history absolutely. You've never experienced their history. So there's this weird kind of flux that you, you operate and you think, wow, you know, where do I belong? And for me at the time, I was thinking, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just a citizen of the world. <laughs> the way I kind of, kind of, that made me feel better saying it that way. And, and you're quite right, I'm doing comedy around the world now. I'm currently in Brighton in the UK with my show, um, which has the theme of mediocrity. But it's only when people hear you speak for the first time, they say, this guy's not Australian. Wonder what it is. Doesn't sound Australian, but he says he's from Melbourne. What's going on? <laughs> I smell a rat. Sadly, sadly, I've lost my accent, although people pick it up straight away. They say, ah. Oh, you're definitely South African. And, uh, and that's kind of a nice thing as well is perhaps that's in a linguistic point of view, it's the one thing that will always give me that connection to my home country is the fact that I have a South African accent. And yeah, no, I, I can hear it now. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't <laughs> unhear it now. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, so maybe if we can backtrack a little bit. And um, you mentioned that you grew up in South Africa during apartheid. So, ooh, I can only imagine, like, Chiro and I both read uh, Trevor, Trevor Noah's, Noah's book. book. I don't know if you yeah. read that book. Oh, I know. I have not. No. It's an it's excellent a good read. Yeah, yeah excellent Great. book. I'll, I'll get it today. Yeah, yeah and he kind of talked about his experience growing up in 
apartheid South Africa as mixed race, you know, having a white father and a black mother mm-hmm. and navigating that. And his book was quite revealing about the construct of apartheid. So uh, just wondering for you, like, do you remember what it was like? And if you felt like there was like a like a division of sorts. Or- there was there was obvious segregation. I mean, it was it was a policy that white people lived in affluent places with streets that had street lights, um, and black people. Or in my context, I grew up as a kid in Cape Town, um, and there's a, a coloured people is kind of the the name given to the the dominant other non-white people that live in Cape Town. And there was also, of course, the other like Indian people and black people and different tribal black people ultimately around South Africa. I think there's, there's a far more, far bigger spread of talent and diversity in South Africa when you think about it in that way now. But growing up, most definitely, it was obvious. Um, but as a kid, you don't necessarily question that it isn't normal because you don't know any different. And I'd say that it was only until my teens when... I was able to ask those questions because it then became obvious to me that I would see other people on the street. I'd see other kids of of different color my age on the street, but my parents would be saying, oh, you know, don't hang out with them. Be careful who you hang out with. And it was this question as to why. Mm. And my parents could never, and I don't know if they never told me their personal beliefs in the reasoning or whether it was them being parental and just saying we have a gut feel that, you know, we need to protect you and at this point in time kind of hanging out with people from of a different colour in apartheid South Africa is a bad thing. We don't want you to get mixed up in things that we won't have control over or we as parents are going to be judged by. Yeah. But we always had um you know, maids and gardeners who were who were black people and this was their I guess ultimately their way of integrating into the economic power base that white South Africans and white privilege had. And make no mistake, it was extraordinarily privileged. I, as both my parents had jobs, and in the, in the time and asking my parents about it, when they were growing up, basically they said, I asked them, why didn't you ever leave apartheid South Africa when there were op- opportunities for you to do so? And their response was an economic one and said, well, we always had work. You know, my father always had a job, and my mother, who kind of later in my childhood then went into the workplace, always had a, a well-paying job. We lived in great houses. We we had two cars. We were, had access to all the things we wanted to. And remembering, and you guys might not appreciate how, how hard this was for us in the sense that there was whites-only beaches in Cape Town, and then there was non-white beaches in the same that there was white carriages on the train and non-white carriages on the train. And the school bus system, um, even though it was public transport, it was for white people only in, in, our, in our situation. And in 1990, when um, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and the ANC was ultimately un- unbanned as a, uh, or declassified as a terrorist organization and a fully-fledged uh, political party, that was the first time that in my high school we were allowed to accept, or the school was allowed to accept, non-white students. And in my kind of second to last and last year of school, I'd say there was about a handful of non-white kids that came to our school. And that was very interesting because this was a, a kind of a brand new way. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, the inherent and obvious and overt racism f- towards those kids 
must have made it so hard for them. And I, I think back now that I talk about it with you guys, you know, they were really pioneers, those kids, and, and their parents to have the confidence to say, you know what, we want the best education for you, and you, we're going to send you to this all-boys high school, you know, that's uh, pretty expensive to go to, but we have the means to want to give you the best start in life. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess this is more of a question out of my curiosity. Do you ever have a chance to have a conversation with a black kid about what had happened what you guys had seen growing up together from totally different sides oh yeah I, I remember um growing up in my younger years there was a church that i used to go to and um that church would have branches or you know congregations in all parts of cape town and once or twice a year those congregations and their youth groups would come together and you'd actually get an opportunity to talk to these non-white communities as it were and one of the things that I recall the most was was gangs and these kids used to talk about their fear of their gangs in their home communities and their kind of fear of that and, and that was something I was never even aware of and in talking to them about it they at that stage used to talk about um, the scourge of what we now know as meth um, but they call it took in South Africa and the role that that kind of drugs and hallucinogenics would play in those communities and the opportunities that they would miss out on because even in those communities there'd be rival gangs and they'd almost be forced to join one or the other for absolute fear of their own lives. So these were kind of these weird, when I say weird, I mean very real for those people, but these things that I'd never been exposed to. Um, and then talking to them about, you know, what is their reality in this whole in this whole sense. And, and many of them were ultimately just very dismissive of, Obviously, the fact that you know we live with privilege and they observe the privilege, but they also have their home communities and their friendships and their strong familial kind of groupings in the areas that they did live. Very interesting because, like in Zimbabwe, um, although like we were we are part of the born free and you know there wasn't that segregation when we were growing up. There, there still seems to me, at least from my perspective, to be. Almost like with uh, white Zimbabweans and black Zimbabweans, we're living, we're coexisting, but we're kind of like living parallel lives that occasionally intersect, you know, in school and, you know, other activities like work. But socially, it's still, at least like from my perspective, sometimes there's a little bit of intersection, but it's still like... They're kind of two streams yeah, happening. Yeah, two streams of life happening. Uh, yeah, between. like I've only begun to appreciate like the the fact that apparently there was an apartheid in Zimbabwe that I wasn't aware of. Because <laughs> I did. Oh, come on, guys. I, I was deprived from actual yeah. history well, teaching. That is not my fault. Yeah, we did not get yeah. very good I found this history. out like my own way. So anyways, yeah, like I only began to have the appreciation of it and the effects that it has later on where you end up with the sort of like three parallel, like you get the colored people doing their thing, white people doing their thing, black people doing their thing. And yeah, it's just, yeah. at least like my hope is that we all just like integrate, <laughs> sing Kumbaya, <laughs> hold hands. Because, and... because, you know, Christine and Cheeto, it's, it's the diversity of thought that people bring. Yeah. And I, I feel that so many people in the world are not open to hearing the stories of others. It's we take this immediate view of, as you, in the opening segment to, to what you said earlier, you know, you're from Africa, but why aren't you black? Mm. It's, it's the diversity of, you know, these, this connection to that land that these, that these people and their communities and their forefathers have had for generations upon generations over thousands, if not tens and thousands of years. 
there are things to learn from these people and their experiences. And I, I've always, I've always admired one thing about Africa is, you know, very much it's about Africans like to sort out their own problems, and that that kind of fraternity or tribal approach to something I think is is something very interesting to me. It's to say that you're safe here, but we need to talk about sorting out some issues if there is conflict amongst others. And I think a melting pot of cultures like South Africa was and still is. It's got 11 official languages, for example, which by and large are based on tribal languages. Mm -hmm. So there's all these kind of differences within the country. There's, there's still, I would say, why people have these, the economic advantage by a long shot, but only because they were provided this, this platform in apartheid to do so. So the rest are playing catch up in their own entrepreneurial ways, which I think is disrupting the economy in a big way. So it's becoming this very exciting, creative kind of economy and there's lots of fun and interesting things happening in a place like South Africa. I suppose a, a final question here. Um, you're white, yes. Um, is there any Very. part of you? <laughs> <laughs> Unmistakably white. <laughs> is there any part of you that identifies as European at all, um, given that's sort of, you know, where your ancestry comes from? Yeah. It's, geez, that's a great question. Because I and and what comes to mind when you ask that question is I've I travel to Europe uh, quite a lot because I, I like Europe and I like the interesting history that like this long history that it has that a place like Australia you know two hundred years old or thereabout just just doesn't have that long history for white people as it were mm -hmm. but it's interesting when I'm in places where I know my forefathers are from like if I look at my grandparents it's a spread on my dad's side being a Swedish grandfather an Irish grandmother. And on my mother's side, it's a German grandfather and a French grandmother. If ever I'm in Northern Europe, there's this weird connection with the place that I cannot rationally explain. It, I just feel comfortable there. And it's as if my body knows I'm from this area and that there's this, this connection that I don't have a continuing connection with the place, but there's something about it where my forefathers you know, came from in their own way and found their own way to South Africa to, to form their own lives. So that's, um, that's probably the extent of the connection, I'd say. It's just kind of this weird connection. And I wouldn't say that there's anything about Europe or, you know, the Europeans where we ultimately are, are from, um, that, that there's this connection beyond that. It's not as if I seek out, oh, I would like to come and live here and experience that. But yeah, it's such a good question because you, you guys, Cheeto and Christine, absolutely know where you are from, mm. and your forefathers still have that connection to that place, and it's been an unending connection, and that's a, a very beautiful thing in its own right. Well, there's a little. Uh, it's inconclusive. I knew she was going to bring it up. <laughs> uh, no, um, well, according allegedly, allegedly, based on our last name, there might be some Arab heritage, uh -huh. but the DNA test will prove that. I am planning on taking one. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> incredible! Are you really? Yeah, well, allegedly, wow. allegedly, yeah. it would explain a lot of things. Really, would about it? About my Would hair it? texture. Yeah, your hair texture, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we're all we're all the citizen of the world, ultimately. Yes. We all come from somewhere. <laughs> and I think uh, we're going to leave it there. So thank you so much, Gavin. Yeah. You are one of the brave people to, <laughs> to put your hand up for this topic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amazing. Wow. No. And, uh, you know, I'd love to come and meet you, Christine, at yeah. some point. Yeah. Yeah. We can have Roy Boss. Yeah. We can have Roy Boss. 
no, I've I've loved I've loved our connection straight away, Tito, since the first time we had a chat, and uh, it's been a real joy to to get to know you and ultimately to be calling you a friend. So this has Aww. been a really wonderful experience. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, awesome. thanks for coming on thanks, the show, Gavin. It's all about black girl magic on today's Minority Spotlight as Chido and I are chatting with two beautiful ladies, Vanessa Okanse, creator of The Say Loud Show, and Rosaline Kane, contributor and creative director of the show. If you're unfamiliar, The Say It Loud Show is a new and much-needed talk show centered on the black Australian perspective. So welcome to the show, ladies. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we'll start off with you, Vanessa. So... As creator of the show, can you tell us how you came up with the idea of starting the show? Sure thing. Um, So I very often watch Black British and Black American web series, listen to their podcast, um, and found a lot of comfort in listening to people that were going through similar struggles uh, to myself as someone that is Black living in um, Australia, being a minority. But I kind of got tired of hearing only their perspectives um, on issues that I thought were important and I just thought to myself, why doesn't Australia have something similar to this? Um, I searched to see if there was, and there was nothing. So I guess I took it upon myself to create that. Um, I then connected with Rosaline, Rebka, and my brother, who also also share the same passions. And we just thought, if the opportunity is not there, then we have to create it ourselves. So it's a much-needed platform. Yes. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Agree to that. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and so how do you feel about the current Australian media's representation of the black experience? Um, obviously, it, it gets a bit difficult as well because uh, the term black, obviously, in the dominant Australian narrative refers to Aboriginal people. Um so that does confuse people as well when you do refer to yourself as black Australian. As I remember I went to Bali and um, I, you know, I said, oh, I'm from Australia. And they just said, oh, so you're Aboriginal. People don't even know we exist. Africans exist in Australia. Um, the media is very limiting in how they represent us in the media. You know, they've always got that one token black person and, and that's meant to be enough to represent all of us. And, and that affects identity, uh, our building your identity and a huge way growing up I never really could watch the turn on the TV or even walk around and see ads and see people that look like me so I think Australia is still learning and, and still trying to pave the way but we've got a long way to go yeah so Rosaline um, yeah what made you want to get involved with the project well like Vanessa said th- this is something that's much needed we're not you know, portrayed in the society in Australia in much at all or on the media. Um, And I was like, I want to be down for this. I'm sick of complaining. I'm sick of talking about it. Let's actually get something done for us, for each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I have younger siblings um, and I see what they go through, you know. How come I don't look like this? You know, how come what we do isn't showed? Am I doing something wrong? I want to be more like them like the white Australians, and I'm like, no, this is who we are. We're Australians, but we're African, we're black. You don't have to be like them. We can be like us, you know? So, you know, it's definitely much, much needed. So I was like, yes, I'm on board. Yeah, so, yeah, it is really much needed. And on your show, you you guys have quite a number of different people representing um, 
well, parts of the black experience in Australia. Yeah. But I was just wondering, watching the episodes, I was like, were you guys all friends prior to the show? No. <laughs> yeah. um, no. But now Rosalie, you <laughs> Oh, you mean the part now we are. Even yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but I, before that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rosalind and I, we just been Facebook friends for forever. Yeah, I, I hit her up about it just because I saw, you know, what she posted about and she definitely seemed about the movement. So I had no idea. We had never formally met before I met her. Obviously, now we are friends, very close friends. Um, the panelists. We had a casting them, for that. Yeah, yeah. the casting. So we knew, I knew some of them because like, we just went to the community, um, Rosalind's community, Rebka, the writer, her community, and then other people referred other people so it was a bit hard to do because we've never done anything like this before but mm. we didn't know the whole cast the whole panel I should say didn't know each other so it was very it was very raw and authentic in in how we had to deliver it it wasn't like we got yeah. to practice before or anything speaking about the panel um because Chido and I were both hey, hey. having discussions about <laughs> this um you know everyone on the panel is black or has black heritage but what's really striking to us is that it's such a diverse panel you know culturally yeah. speaking but also diversity yeah. in thought I have a couple of bones to pick with a couple of your panelists on the Jungle Fever episode. Oh, the one. I was of like, course. what? How do people don't get it? I don't understand. Um, but yeah, can you talk about uh, that process of, you know, casting your panel and what you wanted the panel to represent? We were pe- after a group of people with opposing opinions. We didn't want people to just, you know, have the same opinion as one another. Mm. Um, we wanted people that had educational background so they could back up what they were saying. They weren't just making it up as they go. Yeah, so a lot um, of the panellists have very strong academic um, backgrounds. So we yeah. wanted we wanted people that know what they're talking about and, as she said, diverse opinions. It's not going to be very interesting to watch if we all, if we all think the same thing. Who, who did you have a problem with, by the way? <laughs> yeah, who did you have a problem with? I don't want to name names, but his name starts with an S I and it rhymes with oh. cola. You're, you're not the only oh. one. Hey, I thought he was amusing, so I, I want to see oh, more really? of him in, in, in future episodes. Oh, so you guys... A lot of people have been talking about him, hey? Him, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Someone just recently commented underneath and... The stuff that when you guys get a chance, go and read the comments that they say. They're making all kinds of ridiculous comments, but it's good. good Were they nasty or they're like in the spirit of healthy Uh, debate? Slightly nasty, but they do have some valid points as well. Exactly. He, he did have yeah. some valid points. I will give that to him. But then um, give that to I him. think <laughs> I, I think Chido and I have different perspectives because Chido has a boyfriend, have. so I, she's good. Whereas I am trying to, to date. Anything. It's like, got everything to do with no, everything. Your perspective is what? skewed because you don't know what it's like. What do you mean I don't know what it's like? You don't like, understand I the struggle. Is, this is going to be. Another... We'll take it offline. And <laughs> <laughs> in itself. <laughs> Anyway, you um, see, but that's that's what yeah. your show has done to our sisterhood. Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Uh, Vanessa, you mentioned that none of you had uh, experience doing this type of thing before. Um, mm-hmm. So, how's it been like putting together the show? Like, do you sometimes feel like imposters? I think sometimes children and I feel like that. Well, at least I feel like that. Like, yeah, you feel like. Uh, that. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but... Oh Lord, trust me. <laughs> 
it is has been a battle because um, we filmed it last year, uh, May June, and then I went overseas for some time. Came back, I had no idea about filming, editing. Sorry, none of us did because my the brother. The process, also, yeah, yeah, the process. None of us. We're all we're all super keen, but when it actually come to came to executing, oh my lord! And we didn't have any funding as well, so everything came from our pockets. Oh, wow. yeah. In terms of yeah, renting equipment, editing—it's all a tedious process. But I think the passion kind of overshadowed the hard work, and we kind of learned as we went along. And you know, with people like Rosalind, who's good in the creative aspect, um, myself—I think I'm just—I can be controlling. So I just kind of oversaw everything. My brother was uh, more the practical side in terms of like renting and doing the filming, and then Rebcar did all of the the writing and the content creation. So I think having a good team definitely made it easy, and it was like a learning process. So it is a yeah. pilot, and we want people to know that there's room for improvement. But we just wanted to get something out there to see people's reception. Yeah. No, I think you yeah. guys are doing really well. Thank I certainly you. have been enjoying Thank it. You. Yeah, the first two episodes have been really good. So yeah, I also oh. really like the street. Like out on the street segments you Aspects. do. Like, yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So um, just on that, what else can we expect to see from the show? Yeah, so we've got one more episode. So definitely look out for that. That's the last one um, for, the, for the season. And it's a good one. I think so anyway. You let me know what you think after. <laughs> <laughs> um, but our hope is to uh, pitch it to bigger platforms and just to, con- to collaborate with other people. Um, and see where it can grow from here. We definitely want to continue making bigger seasons, but I think we're going to need some more support and backing to be able to do that. We love what you're doing. And, you know, honestly, I think, you you know, just throwing yourself into something and learning that way, I think probably that helps, like, you know, (laughs) cement the actual learning. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's all we have time for. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. You guys continue what you're doing as well. We love it. Thank you. And to everybody else listening, do yourselves a favor by tuning in to Say It Loud show channel on YouTube. Well, that's it for today's show. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Continue to send in your messages to sassyinrzsos at gmail.com. Also, make sure to hit the subscribe button in iTunes and please leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening and until next time, bye! bye.